Good morning. Throughout the week, you know, what happens is I look at the lectionary passage as we're doing the narrative lectionary and say, what in the world is going on with that passage? How can we get there one way or another? Particularly in light of this passage from the fourth chapter of Mark. And we've been reading along and we will continue through Mark through Easter. And we now enter a portion where Mark has gathered up a collection of Jesus' parables. And since it's long, I think it's helpful for us to share this responsively. So let us join together in sharing this portion of God's Word as given by the Gospel writer Mark. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there, while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those who were around him along with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket, or under the bed, and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed." Nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given you. For those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. He also said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and puts forth large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the love and justice of God is reflected in myriads of lives, in myriads of ways. This sermon today will be a little bit different, taking, I think, a less familiar route of our understanding these familiar words of Jesus in the parables, particularly on this Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Today I will focus for a few minutes on the life of of another person who continues to inspire millions in the name of Jesus even today. And I am referring to the one whose name is on the banners up and down North Charles Street here, 
whose name is included in the title of at least 28 universities in the USA and many, many more prep schools. Ignatius of Loyola, ready for something a little different. He lived a more unexpected life than you would think, having been born into a family of the Basque nobility in northern Spain in 1491. He discovered unexpected gifts in the difficulties of his life. The Basque people remain fierce defenders of the land that they've held for thousands of years in the Western Pyrenees. Basque, they claim, was a language spoken by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They say that the devil himself studied it for seven years, but never learned more than three words. Anybody know Basque? When Ignatius was a teenager, he was sent to the royal court in Madrid, where he flourished as a promising young knight. His friends called him Inigo, and he was admired for his wit and exuberance. He is said to have had an eye for the ladies and a readiness to fight at the drop of the hat. In 1521, when the French invaded the nearby town of Pamplona, he sprang to its defense, rallying his men atop the walls. But his time as a warrior ended when a cannonball shattered his left leg. He barely survived this injury, and it changed his life in a totally unexpected way. As he recovered from multiple surgeries, Ignatius began to read of the lives of the saints and experienced a dramatic conversion. They talk about this cannonball moment. You talk about the cannonball moment up here. Remember that. He first envisioned himself as a soldier for Christ, beginning a valiant quest by making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But he only got as far as the outskirts of Barcelona. There his illusions were shattered. Everything fell apart, spiritually and emotionally, and he passed through a dark night of the soul. He remained for almost a year living in a cave there for months. There he started to write his spiritual exercises. From the mouth of that limestone cave, he could look back on the mountain ridge of Montserrat, about 10 miles away. That's where he had stopped along his way, leaving his sword and dagger behind, praying all night before the altar of Mary at the Benedictine Abbey on the mountain slopes. He'd envisioned himself doing great things for God, but didn't know how. The dramatic views of the mountains and rivers and cave helped him pull it together. He'd always aspired to mountain heights, striving to be the most impressive knight at the court, the bravest soldier, and now the best of all the saints. But suddenly the grandiosity of his life and his capacity for self-delusion became painfully apparent. It forced him down the mountains into a cave, facing the work of carving out the canyon of his inner life. It proved to be the hardest time of his life, undercutting everything that he'd known. For the first time, he found himself alone without an admiring audience, with no one to impress by his reputation. This once proud soldier fell into a dark depression over what his life had been, and uncertainty as to what was coming next. He let his hair and his fingernails grow. He begged for food in the streets and went for days without eating. Swallowed up by a sense of desolation, he feared that God would never forgive him for his sins. He was tempted to commit suicide, to throw himself off a mountain cliff. But then came a breakthrough. 
This 30-year-old cavalier had always given himself over to his senses. Beautiful women, fine clothes, good wine, the thrill of hand-to-hand fighting. He now sensed that God was speaking to him through the surrounding landscape. He received a vision that he later described as the single most powerful experience in his life. It came as he sat by the river outside the cave. He was suddenly aware of being surrounded by the beauty of nature. His eyes of understanding began to open. Iniego saw the whole of creation in a new light, seeing God in all things, a theme that he began to develop for the rest of his life. He noticed multiple layers of wonder that he traced through the natural world, revealing God's love at every point, in bedrock elements of water and rock, in flowery, steady lives of plants, in the companionship of life that animals share, and finally in the sparkling intelligence of human beings. Each of these steps led him to an awareness of himself and everything else as a dwelling place of divine majesty in the image and likeness of God. He also received a vision of Jesus, seeing the man of Nazareth face to face. This Jesus was anchored in the world. God become flesh. He was then drawn to Jerusalem so he could touch and see the actual places where Jesus had lived, this new captain who demanded his loyalty. The notion of seeing Jesus present with him became a thread running throughout the rest of his life. Spirituality made real. A new confidence came out of this experience, a courage not based on Basque machismo or chivalry, but a sureness that the world is filled with God's glory. After returning from Jerusalem, he spent the better part of 10 years getting an education first learning Latin with his schoolchildren in Barcelona, and then taking a master's degree at the University of Paris. There he gathered together a cadre of companions who became the first members of the Society of Jesus, founded in 1540. As general of the order for the next 15 years, Ignatius dispatched missionaries around the world, establishing schools and colleges, meeting the needs of the poor in the context of their native cultures. The centerpiece of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, are the spiritual exercises begun by Ignatius while he was still living in his cave. It was in the darkness that he explored the human psyche, the motives, the fears, the desires, the denials that can lead either toward wholeness or destruction. This is the most basic stuff of soul work. In getting the soul right, we get our lives right, and vice versa. It's always a balancing act of internal discernment and public work. Ignatian spirituality starts from the inside out. It dares to make an inventory of what is and isn't working for us, cutting to the chase about what we finally need to do. The Ignatian way also insists that we encounter the divine ministry not only in Scripture and in the Church, but in the full range of human experience and in the dark recesses of our world. Loyola first viewed the cave as an ideal place for examining the conscience, for probing the depths and the convolutions of the human soul. As Barbara Brown Taylor says about the reasons to take spiritual direction, she says, we go to counselors when we want help getting out of caves. We go to directors when we are ready to be led farther in. Loyola's spiritual exercises are explicit directions for companionship in the spiritual life. 
ideally set over a 30-day period given to reflection and prayer. The exercises are broken into four weeks or four movements. We are led then into an intensive, close reading of the gospel stories of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In making the Jesus story your own, he explains, you have to use your imagination, inserting yourself into the context and the geography of the tale, incorporating what he called the composition of place and use of all the senses. In Diego's latent machismo from the world of the conquistadors filters through his guide, I think, in interesting ways. His use of the New Testament is dramatic and literal. Perhaps, though, what is most perplexing about the exercises is that while they concentrate on the life of Jesus, not one of the sayings of Jesus appears. It's all about action, traveling, making miracles, confronting sin head-on in body and spirit, leading to the cross and the glorious resurrection. Loyola stressed a concrete and incarnational nature of the gospel, which I think can be equally applied to the parables. His method still makes sense. Jesus told parables not to explain, but to explore. Not to provide answers, but to engage the imagination and stir the soul. Parables are tiny bits of coal squeezed into diamonds, condensed metaphors that catch the rays of something ultimate and glint it at our lives. Parables are not illustrations. They do not support, elaborate, or simplify a more basic idea. To really hear a parable is to submit to entering its world, to know that we do not really know what it means. Parables have hooks all over them. They can grab each of us in a different way, according to our need. Maybe they might be called little cannonballs that hit us just at the right place, or maybe just the wrong place. So as we near the end of these words, let's have a try. Jesus says many things about seeds, some that grew, some that died, mustard seeds, and more. All was explained to his disciples, but it is planted in us, even now, unexplained. He says, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground. It would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. So God's kingdom may be, say, like planting potatoes. You can't see what's really happening until harvest time. But all the while, the seed that you planted is developing into something valuable. It is invisible, but is growing nonetheless. Maybe it is like the caring way that you raised your children that will probably someday, some way, help to make them into caring people. Maybe it's like the justice that you work for now that won't be harvested for years or for decades. Maybe it's like the way that you treat someone now that might come back to you in similar form. Maybe it's like the way that you try to spend time volunteering, or study, or prayer, or meditation, or family life, or in your job that will make you a better person, that those around you will also benefit. One day, the seed that is sown will see the light of day, and the harvest will be real. Now, is that too much on the seed metaphor? I don't think so. Patience is the key. Do the right thing. Give it time. 
and do the right thing some more, the kingdom will grow. In the words of Dr. King, the arc of the universe bends toward justice. Be faithful. Be honest. Be true. In the end, it is what Ignatius Loyola would do as I close with one of his prayers. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for reward, save that of knowing that I do your will. Amen. Amen.